This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, March 15th at 10.30 a.m. Eastern. Tommy Douglas was a populist on the left. Ed Broadbent was a populist on the left. David Lewis and his end corporate welfare bums was a populist on the left. Our entire party is built in left-wing populism. I don't think we should be afraid of that title or let right-wing people have a monopoly on the idea of populism. Raj, and this is Follow Up, a Huffington Post Canada political podcast. This week, we look at the NDP's leadership race and the growing calls from party members and some candidates to shift the party to the left. It's time to take back our country from the rich and powerful and offer fundamental change. So while the Prime Minister waxes on about the middle class, we can talk about the reality of the new working class. We're talking about people struggling in poverty, and we're talking about the 1% gaining more and more at the expense of everybody else. Well, I'm in vehement agreement with both of my colleagues. Somebody <laughs> had to say So many large corporations and wealthy Canadians are going into tax havens and the tax scams that we've seen. This week on the show, I'll talk to NDP leadership contender Nikki Ashton. We'll hear from a potential challenger, former union leader Sid Bryan. We'll take a deep dive on the NDP's first debate with our political pundits, conservative Jenny Byrne, New Democrat Carl Belanger, and liberal Greg McEachran. We'll wrap things up with HuffPost senior political editor Ryan Maloney and hear from someone who's still undecided about joining the NDP contest, Ontario NDP MPP Jagmeet Singh. We'll also hear from people, real people like Stephen Lloyd, whom you heard at the top of the show, talk about where they want to see their party head. It's a packed show. Here we go. Okay, my name's Dorothy O'Connell. We're at the Delta Hotel at the uh, debate for the NDP leaders. I'm hoping to see a definite left turn from the NDP. Well, I think people are getting tired of the fact that every time we get close to power, we move to the middle and lose our support that was there from the beginning. Uh, My grandmother helped to start the CCF, and she was a member of Parliament in BC. And she was a socialist, and I'm a socialist. Yeah, I'm Don Smith, uh, Ottawa Vanier riding here in Ottawa. Oh, I want to see us move to the left. I was a member of the Waffle way back when, and uh, and I thought it was wonderful what happened down in the States with Bernie uh, Sanders. If anybody could have suggested that the United States, of all places, a guy could call himself a socialist and do as well as Bernie did, uh, nobody would ever believe that uh, a year ago. So uh, uh, some hope for uh, the socialist end of things. I'm Shuvo Ghosh. I think actually, you know, perhaps during this, this leadership process for the NDP, it would be interesting to see if we stop talking so much about the left and right divisions, because I think really what's more important here in Canada right now is the economic disparity issue, which cuts across left and right. I think that's the issue of our times. But I want to say that there's a lot to learn from what happened in the election of 2015. We played it too safe. We let the liberals out left us. So we have to learn from that and recognize that the way to inspire people 
is by being who we are, being that left party. Manitoba MP Nikki Ashton was the fourth contestant to join the race, following entries by BC MP Peter Julian, Ontario MP Charlie Angus, and Quebec MP Guy Caron. So far, she's the loudest voice saying the NDP shouldn't just be a party that's there to win elections. Nikki Ashton, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you, Althea. I want to ask you, I guess, first of all, why are you running? Hmm. Well, we're running for two, I would say, key reasons. One is the NDP is at crossroads, and two, the country is at a crossroads. The first one about the NDP being at a crossroads, I think, is was very clear in the last election where we lost significant ground. A lot of people were very uh, involved and excited to get rid of Harper, uh, but sadly people didn't look to us as we had hoped. Uh, And while there were some um, great stories that night, overall uh, we sustained some significant losses. Uh, And it's clear to us that, and and obviously many have, have said this as well, that it's important that we reconnect with our principles, that we be proud of being a progressive party, that we be proud of being on the left. And that includes building a movement. We came from uh, our roots are in are in a movement uh, and uh, or movements and uh, and I would say if you look around what's happening right now, especially now with the uh, uh, the election of Donald Trump, you're seeing many people, many young people, uh, indigenous people, racialized communities, women uh, come out in big ways uh, and say we need to be involved. We need to be involved in different ways. And I think, and certainly in progressive ways, and the NDP needs to connect with these folks, needs to connect with young people who don't see party politics as as, as their thing, but see the common goal of, of achieving justice as something that they, they want to be part of. And so we need to build that movement. Secondly, I would say it is because Canada's at a crossroads. The two major challenges we face are growing inequality and the threat of climate change. And on both of these fronts, but particularly on inequality, that's connected to the loss of good jobs in our country. Do you think the NDP can win and form government by moving further to the left? Well, I would say it's a question of the NDP being who it is, right? And I come from a province where we've been in government uh, for significant periods of time. And and, uh, and the way we, we rose to government, certainly in my lifetime, was by making it clear whose side we were on, that we were on the side of working people, that we were on the side of people struggling in poverty. But I would also say that that we have to be clear that that Canada is is shifting. Uh, you know, many have looked at the race in the states and and the rise of of Bernie Sanders and and, and the inspiring movement that he had, uh, that he put helped put together. Also, the rise of Donald Trump, where economic insecurity is a driving force uh, in uh, um, in the states. The fact that more and more people are being sque- feeling squeezed uh, economically is a reality. You know, in Canada, we always like to think that we're better than the U.S., that we do things better than the U.S. And the reality is, when you look at inequality, in some ways, inequality inequality is actually growing faster in Canada than in the U.S. In fact. Uh, From 1975 to 2000, in the U.S., 47% of the wealth created went to the 1% of top income earners. Uh, In Canada, during that exact same time period, the percentage is 37%, not far off. Uh, You know, and we we see this in in many ways. We see the fact that, you know, just recently it came out that two Canadian billionaires will own the same amount of wealth as the 11 11 million least well-off Canadians. I mean, these numbers are shocking. That's not the kind of Canada that, that I thought I was growing up in. And, uh, and you already see it, how, how, that, how that, those insecurities and those tensions are, are 
represented in the conservative leadership race, where I would say you hear some talk about job creation, uh, but then sort of in the next sentence, you'll hear about scapegoating and, uh, uh, you know, xenophobic policies. And and that to me is, is I mean, certainly Trump-inspired politics. Uh, and that's that's a dangerous direction. That's that's not who we are. Political scientists would look at the campaign south of the border, the Donald Trump campaign and the Bernie Sanders campaign, and they would say that what both campaigns did very successfully is paint a villain, right? Donald Trump painted immigrants as a threat. Bernie Sanders painted the elites and Wall Street as a threat. And something that would, you know, if we fought against this perceived evil, then our situation, our economic situation would be better. I was struck by your launch where you talked about the elites and the need to take back our country, Canada. Why did you do that? Well, because I think that's, that's, it's the elites that have gotten us to where we are today when we are talking about climate change, when we are talking about inequality. Uh, you know, it, it has been, uh, you know, and I, I talked about it in our launch, you know, the neoliberal uh, political and economic agendas that, that have been imposed on us for for. Uh, decades. You know, the idea that privatization, deregulation, austerity, trade deals, um, foreign ownership, corporate uh, concentration is, is going to lead us to this promised land of equitable wealth distribution has definitely not materialized. We need to fight back. We need to say uh, that we're not going to accept this 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 downward trend uh, and, uh, and that what's at risk is not just the well-being of a generation, but the well-being of our country. I mean, who's going to Who's going to pay for our healthcare system if if nobody's gainfully employed and, and able to pay their taxes? Or what does the future look like when people are deciding to not have kids or because they can't afford them? I mean, uh, you know, what what does the future of our country look like when you have an entire generation that uh, um, that where most people won't have a pension? You know, and so so what does that mean in terms of quality of life, in terms of well-being? And so you know, I'm seeing a lot more people become increasingly concerned about this and um, and what I'm saying is 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 we need our leaders to take this seriously uh, but we need to do so in a unifying way and Nikki Ashton thank you thank you Althea After Sunday's debate, I called Sid Ryan up, the former head of the Ontario Federation of Labour. The NDP Socialist Caucus and many other New Democrats are urging him to run. He told me he's giving himself until the end of March to make a decision. And while he's concerned about splitting votes between candidates on the left, the unilingual anglophone told me he has a whole platform he hopes the other contestants adopt. So, free university uh, and debt relief. I'd like to see a pharmacare program. For, for essentially for seniors. So that social investment bank, if, we, if it ever gets off the ground, I'd like to see heavily invest in green technologies, for example, but also in social housing, like building 500,000 units across the country over a number of years of, of that social housing, such that we can help people uh, at the lower income scales, because right now most people are just priced out of the housing market. I would like also then to take a look at from a from a um, foreign policy perspective, I'd like to see a more balanced approach to how we deal with uh, with Palestine. I'm not uh, enamored at all with the with the troops that we've got, whether it be advisory or training or whatever the purpose is in Ukraine and Iraq and Syria. I don't think we should be engaging ourselves in those in those conflicts. I would love to, love to see the party going back to where it was underneath Ed Broadbent. 
or at least some of that policy which was advocating us to get out of NATO and instead place our energies in the United Nations and play the role, that honest broker role, that I think we can play as a middle power much more effectively than engaging in the war machine. I think the Leap Manifesto is the way to go. I do believe that we should not be building any more pipelines. I do believe it's time that union leaders in particular basically were honest with their members and, and tell them that there are certain industries that we're in that will disappear and disappear faster than what we, we recognize today. There needs to be some money, obviously lots of it put aside. There's trained the workers to transition them out of where they are right now. But I, I don't believe that if you build the infrastructure, you know, for more pipes, pipelines, we're going to be committed to a carbon-based economy for the next 30, 35 years. You know, I would like to see us moving away from pipelines and taking a principled position against them. And uh, I think that, you know, that needs to be done. I'm now joined by three Ottawa insiders. Jenny Byrne was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's Deputy Chief of Staff and the campaign manager for the last election. Carl Belanger worked for every NDP leader since Alexa McDonough and last served as National Director of the party. And Greg McEachern was a Liberal staffer for Belinda Stronach and also worked with Prime Minister Paul Martin. Welcome to you all. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. I wanted to first start uh, this off by asking about this move to the left. Carl, why do you think this shift is happening? Is this a rejection still of the last campaign, or is this maybe inspiration from Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn in Britain, or something else? Well, first, I'm not sure it is happening. We'll have to see what happens during the leadership race. Certainly, there's some people that would like to move us to the left, but that's always the case. It's been the case since I joined the party in 1993. Um, to be honest, uh, I'm not quite sure where we would model ourselves uh, after Bernie Sanders. I mean, after all, he lost. If the point of this game is winning, why would we go down that route? Um, you know, by all measures, I would argue that uh, the platform that Tom Mulcair had last campaign was to the left of the one proposed by Jack Layton in the election before that. I also will point out that we had very radical platform in the 60s and 70s, and that did not lead us to the New Jerusalem that Tommy Douglas was cherishing at the time. So uh, evidently, there's a need for, for bold policies, but, but not necessarily a radical shift to the left. Uh, it's a matter of uh, talking to Canadians and, and, and responding to their aspirations, something that uh, we almost achieved to do in the last election, because you know, let's remember that we led in the polls for most of the election. We just fell short by one month. So Something that had never happened for the NDP in the history of our party. I feel like you want to say something, Greg. <laughs> you, you know, I feel like this is the eternal struggle for the NDP, as Carl said. I'm from Nova Scotia, where an NDP government actually succeeded and, and came in, but they were only a one-term government. And when I worked in Nova the Daryl Dexter government, that's right. And when I worked in uh, Nova Scotia politics in opposition, at one point we were tied with the NDP and we pivoted kind of back and forth. And the challenge for Premier Dexter was the challenge of governing. And they disappointed a lot of their base because when you get into government, you, there's realities. Um, Premier Notley is experiencing this in Alberta. And what we saw, I think, in the last parliament was the NDP at that point of, we're the official opposition. Are we going to become government? Are we business-minded? And you saw a lot of the work that they did in the lead-up to the election and during the election to show that they had 
you know, the the credibility. We were going to balance the budget, mm-hmm. they said. And Cut taxes for small businesses. Exactly, exactly. And then that can also, at the same time, if you're a longtime supporter of the party, you might get disappointed. So basically, or to oversimplify, sometimes it's, are we running to be a strong opposition party, the conscience of parliament, or do we actually want to one day govern? And, and I think that's the eternal struggle. And we saw that, Jenny, in the last debate with Nikki Ashton coming out and saying very clearly she doesn't just want to pursue power, she wants to build a movement. And Charlie Angus and Guy Caron coming out and saying, well, we want to be both. Well, I actually think those two examples are very good. In in the debate, Charlie Angus talked about uh, a bartender named Kim that he met who was putting her her son through law school with tips asking kind of what the hell happened to them during the the last last election. And at the same time, Nikki Ashton was talking about being a democratic socialist and an intersectional eco-feminist, which I don't think the average Canadian have has any idea what that means. In fact, I had to <laughs> I had to Google it and I still don't know what it means. <laughs> and so I think that where we're at is it's the spirit of the uh, of the NDP or the NDP is the struggle between the the Rachel Notley's and and the Jack Layton's versus the the uh, Stephen Lewis's and in my opinion the they should focus on the issues that that real Canadians care about the Kims out there and not kind of the the musings and pontifications of champagne socialists living in million dollar homes in downtown Toronto maybe it's also a question of who shows up you know, we've seen that in the Conservative Party, for example, where the membership seems to be more to the right than uh, perhaps some of the people on stage. And maybe here, in some cases, the core New Democrats who show up to debates and drive for hours to hear members debate are perhaps much more to the left than where some voters want to see the party go. Uh, th- th- there is uh, th- there are a few paradoxes here. Uh, I mean, uh, as Greg pointed out, a lot of progressive are soft, sometimes disappointed by NDP governments. Therefore, the NDP is not left enough. I'm going to vote liberal. Uh, not sure it makes a lot of sense, but people do react that way. Um, there's also a paradox. Jenny talked about uh, Jack Layton and how he moderated the party. He, he also professionalized the party and in, in, in the pursuit of power. Of course, all the candidates on stage last uh, Sunday uh, all claim to be uh, inheritance of Jack Layton's legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's another paradox there. Uh, the truth is that um, you cannot uh, abandon your principles in the pursuit of power, but you also cannot just appeal to a very sh- uh, small base. You have to expand your base. You have to reach out to Canadians in order to build an electoral coalition that will lead you to power in order for you to make the changes that you actually want to make. But in terms of what you said about in terms of uh, who shows up, um, who's allowed to show up in the new NDP? Um, and I apologize in advance to Carl for my pronunciation, but Alexander Bouleris recently criticized the finance minister in the Hill Times for being wealthy, being successful. Um, in Carl's introduction, you talked about you worked for Alexa McDonough from one of the wealthiest families in Nova Scotia, the Shaws. Um, you know, is would she not have been allowed? Jack Layton was the son of a cabinet minister from Hudson, Quebec, uh, belonged to the Yacht Club. Would he be allowed in the new NDP? And I think this is part of what every leadership, whether it's the Conservatives right now trying to define what they are post-Harper or what the NDP are going to be post and quite honestly, Jack Layton, as opposed to Mulcair, because we heard more about Jack Layton, I think, than we did. We heard uh, nothing about Mr. Mulcair. Exactly. 
I just want to add, because Greg reminded me of your original question, which I totally skipped like a true politician, and I'm sorry about <laughs> that. Uh, <laughs> the, um, the membership of the NDP shrunk basically by half since the 2012 uh, leadership race. And so uh, who's going to show up uh, remains to be seen. Certainly the face of the party has changed. Uh, there's a lot more members in Alberta now than there was before 2015. Mm. Uh, other parts of the country, the, the number of members have, has diminished. Now, the universe is still there. Will these candidates be able to organize and sell membership cards? Because it's a pure one member, one vote system. And the best organization can make some ground. So where these people are going to come from remains to be seen at this point. We saw a lot of agreement on stage during the debate. Um, but there was one area of disagreement, which was pipelines. Specifically, I think in reference to LEAP, but nobody really mentioning it. Do you see more points of disagreement emerging as the contest continues? Jenny? Um, I think it's inevitable. Um, And and it's easier for for disagreements when there's only four candidates on stage and they get to have more than 60-second answers, which is what I've been used to watching for the last six months. (laughs) Um, But but in in terms of, of, of the pipelines, I think that the uh, the LEAP manifesto um, suggestion that jobs dependent on oil sand development and natural gas fracking can be replaced with jobs uh, in the arts industry and teaching in the next 30 years is um, is is completely uh, incompletely out of touch. And to be fair, I brought up the uh, uh, the LEAP manifesto, but my understanding is in the whole 90-minute debate, it actually was not discussed on stage at all by any of the candidates. So mm-hmm. I think that Canada, Canada is a country built on resource development, and regardless of, of manifestos that are written, I think the NDP and, and Rachel Notley's position on on the support of pipeline d- development is uh, is a very uh, is a very pragmatic one, uh, and is supported by not only the general public but also private sector unions like the Canadian Building Trades. Not only because it's it's the right policy now, but it also uh, creates good uh, good good union jobs uh, in the uh, in the future. I was surprised that there was no questions about foreign affairs, and therefore no disagreements on the Middle East and Palestine, because that seemed to have been one issue that the the membership seemed to have really taken issue with Mr. Mulcair. Well, the NDP were very critical of Prime Minister Trudeau's visit to Washington and engaging with the Trump government. Weeks later, Premier Notley goes to Washington and does the same thing. That's the problem. They actually have an NDP government that I think a lot of people are rooting for. You see that there's a very close relationship between Trudeau and Notley. And, you know, they are probably, in terms of the progressive side, kind of the, 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 the you know, the, the people who are, you know, holding the flag right now in, in Alberta. So I think that's one of the challenges. If you want to talk about foreign affairs right now, you have to talk about Trump. And you have Mulcair calling him a fascist. If this was the fall of 2015, the very business-friendly, ready-to-govern NDP, I really doubt that Mulcair would have been calling him a fascist, or you would have NDPs like, uh, I think, uh, members like Jenny Kwan saying things are racist. I think there's a lot of Canadians who are very uncomfortable with the Trump administration. But what I do as a Canadian and what my prime minister does, two very different things. Carol? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a challenge for New Democrats and, and maybe some, some who voted against uh, uh, Mulcair during the convention are now realizing what this is going to create, which is very uncomfortable debate uh, about, about resources, about foreign policies, about all kinds of things that New Democrats from time to time disagree on. Uh, you know, in French, we say, on fait pas d'omelette sans casser des oeufs. Um, so there's going to be some, egg, some eggs broken here, and, and there's going to be some uncomfortable moments for the Notley government because, uh, you know, the crowd that is now part of the federal NDP membership uh, has different interests. And, and in fact, other provincial parties uh, within the NDP universe, like in BC, are going to also take position that they're going to make it difficult for the NDP government in Alberta. Uh, certainly, John Ortgern and his position on the pipeline has been very clear, um, and it's, it's different than Rachel Notley. At least. So it's, a, it's another paradox of uh, the NDP universe and the challenges that we have when we form government. Go ahead, Jenny. Well, and I think probably practically speaking, the reason that there was no foreign policy discussed is this was a party, uh, party-sponsored, party-run debate, and this was not something the party actually wanted to talk about. It's been debates that that have caused numerous media stories out of conventions from speaking about not just Canada's relationship with Donald Trump, but also in the in the Middle East and and some of the more. Um, uh, left wing or or the activist membership within the within the NDP. So my guess is just from a party organizational side, they made the determination that they did not want people to see uh, uh, their candidates, uh, their potential candidates, have this debate. That's no, probably no, true. No yeah. garden party. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, one thing I was surprised to hear one of the candidates talk about was Guy Caron and his desire to in his words, reopen the identity question, specifically how the party responded to the whole issue of the niqab um, in Quebec. And he made the comment in French during the debate, but he elaborated in English after the fact with reporters. And this is what he told them. We were not prepared for that question. It was clear. And what I want to do is, within the party, to have that discussion uh, and to have it with the respect of the historical realities in Quebec and of the rest of the country as well. And we can actually have this debate in a reasoned way, in a way that will be inclusive and in a way that will be respectful. And this, is, this is a large part of what this leadership race will be about. So basically, I'm, I'm going to throw this to you, Carl, I'm sorry, but as the sort of NDP person here, why would he want to reopen this debate? Well, the debate was never closed. Uh, it's raging in, in Quebec right now. It's part of the daily uh, sessions of, of the Assemblée Nationale. Uh, so it is not closed. The NDP will have to tackle this issue going forward until a solution is brought forward. And I'm not sure there is one fairly easily found. Um, so it's kind of the elephant in the room for New Democrats. And a lot of New Democrats deny the role that the NICAB had during the election campaign. But there's nothing that had more impact on the campaign of the federal NDP last time than the NICAB issue. Uh, certainly, it uh, torpedoed our entire campaign in Quebec. And uh, it's something we never recovered from. And I'm not sure, frankly, that we've recovered yet. I think there was a period of time where Mr. Mulcair did not fill the void and allow Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to come out and say they were the, the prime defenders of anybody who felt that this ban was offending them. And the NDP kind of allowed some of their candidates, it seems, to go out in the regions and take part in local debates and say that they were against the party's official position. 
Jenny, you well, I think exploited that, this mess. What did you think about? <laughs> well, listen, I, I'm not going to – I agree with Carl's assessment in terms of, like, what happened in terms of kind of the defining point for the NDP campaign. But I don't think it was necessarily an issue outside of Quebec. I think that uh, once support uh, collapsed uh, for the NDP in Quebec um, – it, it wasn't an issue per se uh, in the rest of the country. I think that because they were no longer seen as a viable, incredible alternative to voters looking for a change, no one actually believed that they could be a credible or an effective official opposition without retaining their support in Quebec. So once it became evident that they were not going to keep it, I don't think the issue per se itself hurt them Ontario West. I think it was just the fact that they weren't seen as a credible opposition anymore. But you don't think that the fact that their numbers dropped in Quebec substantially affected their national totals and therefore people who thought they were the option for change and saw their numbers plummet thought, oh, well, maybe the liberals are the option for change. The snowball effect. Yes. I, I know. I think it was. I think that, that whether it was, it, it, I think that's exactly what it was. I think that once once it became evident that the NDP actually were not going to hold the seats in Quebec to be able to keep them, effect, like to, to keep it, to keep their party numbers effective, uh, those voters that were looking for change uh, went over to the Liberals, especially in Ontario. So what good can come out of this discussion, Greg? Well, I, I think the, um, I, I agree with you. I mean, Jenny and Carl were much closer to the uh, election than I was. I watched it from the comfort of the Ottawa bubble on my couch. But my impression was similar to yours. I saw Mulcair not making a leadership de- decision. And I think in interviews since then, he's talked about their numbers cratering. I think it was 20 points in 48 hours. You had MPs like Saganash and Nantel not on, in line with what the, the party wanted. And I think it was interpreted by ROC, rest of Canada, two, two ways. One is the numbers are dropping. Can he, ha- can he have a national campaign? And then those of us who, you know, when the campaign's being interpreted, you know, by the media that are, you know, following the campaign, the fact that he was not making a decision, I think, put a lot of discomfort. There was one debate where Mulcair was extremely strong, kind of came at Trudeau a little bit, and then Trudeau pushed back. I think people were expecting Mulcair, if he was going to be that guy who was going to be poking people in the eye, why was he taking so long to come out with a, a decision on this? I think, um, in, in terms of answering your question, I, I, I can't, it's a third rail. I think what people want to see, whether you fall on one side or another of this issue, they want to see something definitive. And whether it's Kelly Leach and they know exactly where she stands and maybe they really like it, but a lot of people really don't, they just want to see where you stand and you can't be wishy-washy. Do you think this is a Kelly Leach moment, Carl? Oh, it's it's too early to say. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's going to be an issue. Uh, I mean, in, in Quebec, the, the, the divide is not only, um, you know, it's not a simple question of being uh, against immigration or for immigration. It's more complicated than that because lots of progressives in Quebec uh, are against uh, the niqab and other religious symbols because they are progressive and they want to defend the women's rights and etc. So it's it's a little more complicated than than it seems at first, which is why it was perhaps a tricky situation for the NDP and 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 you know Greg and others rightly pointed out that uh, it was a mess that uh, that uh, weighed our campaign down for a good two three weeks before we could move on, um, and clearly that was a problem. Uh, so so Caron raised it this time because he doesn't want this to be a problem next time. Um, because, you know, just last week in Quebec City, they were fighting about a crucifix in a hospital that's 200 years old. They're fighting about these issues right now still. 
So we need to come up with a, a, a better answer to, to move on from that debate and not impact our campaign next time. Okay, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much to all three of you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Income inequality has become one of the defining issues of our generation. We saw it start with the Occupy movement. We've seen it time and time again in a lot of the protests, a lot of the unrest. And whether they know it or not, even the people who voted for Donald Trump, a lot of them were voting because they voted for what they believed was a vision for solving economic equality. This is Stephen Lloyd again, the voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast. We spoke at the Peter Julian after party following the debate, and we got to talking about the word socialist. I asked him if he thought socialism was no longer a bad word in the party. Five years ago, we were in Vancouver. Pat Martin was taking to the floor, the former uh, MP for Manitoba, was on the floor of the convention saying that the party needed to rid itself of the word socialism and the preamble of the party's constitution because it was an anchor that was driving dragging the party down. Brothers and sisters, we have the wind in our sails. We have a sleek new boat. We have the best skipper in the country. We have a crew, a crew of energetic, enthusiastic new MPs with fire in their belly. We only have one problem. Our anchor is dragging behind us. Our anchor is fouled up on the rusted hull of some old ship that sank in the last century and is holding us back. Now everybody I seem to meet wants to tell me how proud they are of being a democratic socialist or just being a socialist. Would the party be having that debate again now? I don't think so. Um, I, whenever I'm asked about this question, I always go back to what Premier Alan Blakeney used to say. Whenever he was asked, are you a socialist, Premier Blakeney would always say, if you let me define the term, absolutely I'm a socialist. If I let you define the term, probably not. How do you define the term? How do I define the term? As J.S. Woodsworth did, what we desire for ourselves, we wish for all. now joined by senior political editor Ryan Maloney. Hello. Hi, Althea. <laughs> Is socialism making a comeback? Oh, man. Uh, as the uh, as the great LL Cool J once said, don't call it a comeback. It's been here for years. <laughs> I regret that joke. Uh, I think that socialism has always been part of the New Democrats. There are certainly socialists in the party who want their views reflected in this race. There may not be a lot, but they're there are some. And I think that Bernie Sanders, who was sometimes called a socialist or a social democrat, has maybe given uh, new life to some of those ideas and uh, speaking openly about them. 
Yeah, I was struck at the debate how many people told me that they wanted the party to move further to the left and that were, they were sort of rejecting the centralization that seemed to happen under Thomas Mulcair, but actually really happened under Jack Layton. And some of the candidates seem really aware of this desire for more of a move to the left. Peter Julian trumped his plan, for example, to eliminate post-secondary tuition fees, something Nikki Ashton actually agrees with. Julian also talked about uh, the need to stop building pipelines and to invest in social housing, 250,000 housing units, I think is what he told us. But uh, some candidates, like Charlie Angus, uh, had difficulty pinpointing themselves on the political spectrum. Well, in terms of where I stand on the political spectrum, uh, I failed Ideology 101. I'm a, I figure I'm a cross between Tommy Douglas and uh, Joe Strummer. And while that didn't impress it, Ryan, at all. I think if you're on the left of the spectrum, you know where you are. You don't, uh, you know, it, it's not something that you have to think about too much. How difficult is that dance that the candidates must play? Well, it's funny. I think leadership races can sometimes feel like an ideological purity test in some respects, especially for a party on the left or a party on the right. I think certainly in this case, being turning more left wing, the thinking might go that that's a way to to challenge uh, Trudeau, who's seen as a progressive. New Democrats disagree with that. But of course, you know, the further left that you go, you risk alienating sort of voters, more centrist voters, or moderate New Democrats who are interested in actually forming government, right? So I think it uh, speaks to the if you want to call it an existential crisis that is sometimes associated with the NDP, whether they want to form government and actually bring about the changes that they talk about or sort of be the conscious of parliament and push, basically push liberals to to remember their progressive promises. I want to play some tape from Jagmeet Singh, the Ontario NDP deputy leader, who, as you know, is still flirting with the idea of possibly entering this contest. I asked him about... Well, I asked him where he thinks he fits on the political spectrum, and this is what he told me. Uh, I would say that I'm proudly, unequivocally progressive, and I want unequivocally to benefit the lives of people in our in our country. But I really believe that we need to make a, have a message that people hear and and aren't, don't turn off just because it happens to hit a certain label or get a certain badge of honor that it's it, oh that's a very social democratic idea, and we win that you know, that, that badge or that label, but then we turn off people who, who don't want to hear the idea because they get caught up in the labels. So while I'm not in, in any way shying away from being a progressive, I really believe in communicating our values in a way that we can increase its audience and increase the number of people that, that believe in this idea. Instead of being caught up in just winning a label or a title and then turning people off to the idea. So Singh, as you know, won a seat as a new Democrat provincially in a region of the country that had never voted NDP before in the Caledon, Mississauga, Brampton area of Ontario. And he says he basically uh, won that seat because he used language that wasn't alienating. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think, again, it goes back to that sort of ideological approach. I mean, most Canadians are not partisan. Most Canadians are not really ideological. They the, I think I think most are sort of in the center, and there might be some conservative ideas they agree with, some progressive ideas, and so maybe not coming to their doorstep and asking them to to get entirely on board with calling themselves a socialist or a social democrat, uh, maybe that can feel alienating. So people who new Democrats who've won in areas who've been able to convince 
perhaps liberal voters or others to to give them a chance, they have a unique perspective. And I don't think it's that much different than what Charlie Angus is saying. And so, mm-hmm. like, this talk about what's on the spectrum uh, gets a little bit confusing sometimes, right? Because if being a conservative means you agree with smaller government and being a progressive means you be, you believe in bigger government, okay. But what about climate change? Is that necessarily a, only for progressives to worry about? Michael Chong doesn't Michael Chong doesn't think so, right? Yeah. What about First Nations problems? Is mm-hmm. that is that only for progressives to handle? I don't I don't think that every conservative would would be happy with that. So there's lots of different things and if you get too ideological and too philosophical with it, it can turn people off. And uh, yeah, that's what <laughs> So I feel I feel like perhaps this is just Groundhog Day, like every five years and the NDP, we have the exact same discussion and debate. <laughs> it does feel like that sometimes. Right. But I think it's a little bit different, too, because you think of how far New Democrats have come in, in a short time. Mm-hmm, um, it wasn't so long ago that the idea of the NDP forming government was sort of funny and laughable to people. Right. And they're serious, incredible party. You know, they, they've they suffered a disappointment in 2015 that was their probably best shot that they've ever had. But they're still a formidable party with good MPs, right? And they, I mean, they ha- I guess the idea is they have to decide how much they want it in terms of forming government and what kind of sacrifices or compromises they want to make. I'm also interested in, in those who think that they can win from the left, right? Because... If they want to have a bolder contrast with Trudeau, who is seen as a progressive, that might be one way to do it. But that's going to result in some difficult conversations over things like pipelines and some need for clarity on on some of those things. You know, I'm actually really excited for this race. I think it's going to be interesting. I think that uh, the NDP have been sort of kicked around a little bit lately and they're still standing. And I think that uh, I think it's going to be pretty exciting, actually. Okay, we'll be watching. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Althea. Well, that's it for this episode of Follow Up. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message on Facebook or Twitter at Althea Raj. Don't be shy to tell me what you think of the show and what you think we should tackle. A big thank you this week to Zian Lum, who stays up till the wee hours of the morning helping me produce this show. Our technical producer is Stephanie Warner, and our executive producer is Andre Lau. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks.